0: All right, Isaiah chapter 13, let's get into the Word of God for today. And more importantly, let's pray that God would get His Word into us. Amen. Isaiah 13 in a message entitled, The Burden Against Babylon. And so with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just want to say thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And we pray, Lord, just for that spirit of unity. Uh, Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity and the anointing and the outpouring and the refreshing that you work through that. And God, I just pray that whatever situations, whatever circumstances, whatever's happening in the hearts of those whom you've assembled here today or are joining us online, whatever the case may be, Lord, that you would speak specifically. Lord, in such a way as that we know, God, you have ministered to us. You've brought us to a crossroad of challenge, of change, and we've made a decision to draw near to you today as a result of spending time with you. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Guys, how do I know that I can trust the Bible? I mean, that what I'm being told that what I'm being taught uh, isn't just the random musings of some well-meaning men uh, throughout the ages. I mean, what is it, guys? What is it that sets this book, right? What is it that sets this book apart from any other? religious writing in the world because listen when i'm putting my eternal destiny on the line right when i'm going all in i'm rolling the dice i'm going all in on this it's important wouldn't you say that i be assured that what i'm being told is true this is a big deal isn't it Well, I like the way that Peter put it, and I'll quote out of the King James Version just because I like the way it reads, but it's in 2 Peter, it's in the first chapter, and he says, you know, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he says, ladies and gentlemen, we were there, okay? Uh, He says, I saw the Lord glorified, shining before my eyes, being transfigured, as it were, on that holy mount. He says, I heard the voice of the Father that came from heaven saying, this is my member. Because there Peter was, and there was uh, Elijah, and there was Moses, and Jesus was shining in glory. And Peter didn't know what to say. I mean, he felt like he had to say something. How many of you have been there? You're like, I feel like I should say something I don't know what to say. And typically what you do say, you wind up regretting you sad. And that was with Peter. He said, Lord, it's great for us to be here. We should build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It'll be great. And then the voice, remember, from heaven comes and says, hey, Listen. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him In other words, don't be putting moses and elijah on par with my son This one is my son hear him In other words, he says guys peter's in his writing is saying we aren't making this stuff up We're not following some uh, carefully crafted scam. We saw it ourselves but then he goes on and he says, but we also have, and here's the phrase I love, a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye or you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines or shineth in a dark place. In other words, Peter is saying, look, ladies and gentlemen, you can trust me. There is reliability behind my eyewitness account. But even beyond that, it's not my witness that I'm asking you or telling you to put your trust in. It's God's word. He says the more sure word of prophecy. In other words, even more sure Peter is saying, more reliable than my eyewitness account is the reliability of the word of God. Now, how is it that God validates his word. Uh, Well, Peter tells us. He says it's through the word of prophecy. In other words, being able to tell you what's going to happen with absolute accuracy before it ever comes to pass. Now, in scripture, you'll discover that it happens. You guys were here Thursday night listening about Uh, Micaiah right and how he was prophesying to ahab and ahab was like talking to jehoshaphat and saying Well, man, I don't like this guy because he always has bad things to say to me and jehoshaphat's like Hey, man, god forbid don't say that bring him in they bring him in and he's like, how's the battle gonna go? And he's like, well, listen, i'm just telling you you're gonna die and he's like, see I told you he always says these things And essentially what he says is um, hey, listen You're gonna die and the dogs are gonna lick your blood And uh, and he says, hey, listen, put this guy in prison, feed him the bread of affliction, feed him the water of affliction. In other words, give him old moldy bread and, you know, old water, whatever, muddy water, whatever the case may be till I return in peace. And Micaiah essentially says, if I if you ever return in peace, then the Lord hasn't spoken to me. In other words, I'm telling you what God is saying. You can take it to the bank. It was just you know and, and so it was so it might be a few hours that he speaks into in, in the front of it may be a few weeks, guys, it may be a few thousand years, okay We read in isaiah forty four where God declares, oh, and by the way, I should say uh, that you remember uh, Ahab went to battle, whew, pow, random arrow he uh, was struck in the chink in the armor. He died in his chariot. They took him back. Blood was running out. They washed it out. What happened? The dogs, absolute accuracy, every detail come, they start licking up the blood. That's what happened. I just wanted to clarify that the word came. Isaiah 44, God declares, I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. And notice this, who can proclaim as I do? If so, he says, then let him declare it. Let him set it in order for me. Since I appoint the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from from that time and declared it? He says, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is Is no other rock, I know not one. So who can proclaim as I do? Who can declare from ancient times? If you can do it, then you can be on par. He says, You can't do it, there's none but me. Again, he says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Notice what's the qualifying factor for you and me? He says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Do you understand what he's saying? God places the validity of his word on the reality of his ability to tell you what's coming before it comes. That's how he says, you know you can trust me. You can know you can trust what's in my word, you see. And as I said, sometimes it's a near-term prophecy. Sometimes it's a long-term prophecy. In Isaiah 13, it's both. And guys, this is something else, you students of Scripture, you who study such things are familiar with prophecy. Something else you discover as you study it is that it's not uncommon. In fact, it's probably more the exception that it's, I don't know, maybe it's, I haven't done the actual stats as to how much, but it's not uncommon for there to be a near, far, dual kind of fulfillment with a word of prophecy. And sometimes, family, there may be more than one detail in a single verse of prophecy that are fulfilled thousands of years apart. And I don't know perhaps since God isn't bound by time like you and me he is I am the eternal present one all things in the now for God and he's not affected or uh, you know impacted by time maybe he just doesn't feel the need to Parse for you and me, and to define and explain the nuances of his timeline you know i i don 't know why sometimes that happens, but you find it even in isaiah uh, chapter sixty one uh, it 's a prophecy of the Messiah, and you remember Jesus, those of you who are familiar with the gospels i 'll just open it up on my phone here real quick, maybe uh, anyway y- you find Jesus in the Gospels, and he uh, he begins His public ministry with the reading of this passage uh, out of Isaiah and telling them that it was fulfilled in their hearing. You remember He opened the scroll, they handed Him the scroll, and He opened it up to the section that said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he rolls the scroll, he closes the book, and he puts it back that 's verse one and the first line of verse two but he doesn 't fi- he stops in the middle of verse two he doesn 't finish the reading why well because he 'll fulfill that portion, the day of the vengeance of our God at his second coming, okay but we see this near far fulfillment of prophecy here in Isaiah. 13. It's a new section in which Isaiah prophesies against the nations. Now, one thing that the Bible teaches us that is that it is appropriate for judgment to begin okay? It's appropriate that judgment would begin in the house of God. Again, that's what Peter tells us. Now you and me, we have the tendency to think, hey, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, why wouldn't judgment begin with the wicked? It seems like they would be in a far more deserving kind of a place. Let's start there where the most wicked and maybe work our way in. God says, no, it's not going to happen like that. Before I deal, God would say, before I deal with anyone else, uh, I'm putting my own house in order first. Okay. the question that warrants consideration is if judgment begins in the house of the Lord, well, then what comes or what becomes of those who don't know the Lord? Those who have stood proudly against the Lord, those who have rejected the Lord, okay? So up to this point, guys, in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12, uh, we have seen God speaking Again, not categorically, but primarily uh, against uh, the sin found in Israel and Judah, right now we know, like I say, Assyria has kind of come onto the radar it hasn't been there hasn't been exclusivity only has he spoke to Israel and Judah, but generally speaking, Israel and Judah have been on god's uh I'll use the word radar again, with regard to judgment, uh, sin, things he's going to do, what he's going to do, how he's going to do it. Here in chapter 13, God begins to deal with the surrounding Gentile nations as well. And he begins with Babylon. Look with me. Turn your attention to the very first verse of the 13th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah writes the burden against Babylon which the which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now, there are a few things guys even in this first verse that we want to point out before we get too far into this here. First of all, we note that this was a vision, right? A visual, it would seem. Uh, of some kind that isaiah experienced right he says here that this was something that he saw okay so he has a vision of sorts here with regard to what he's getting ready to detail for us number two we note that it was the well the word is a uh, burden against babylon now uh, your Bible may say oracle. Uh, your Bible may say message, because there's a couple of different ways you can translate the Hebrew word. I believe uh, once we read through it, you will agree uh, that the word judge or burden, pardon me, is the best translation here. Now you could. Replace the word burden with judgment if you wanted to, the judgment um, against Babylon. But the word burden carries certain connotations, certain implications. Uh, the idea is that it's a heavy, okay, it's a heavy word that he is bringing to them it was not something that was pleasant uh it wasn't the type of message that isaiah really enjoyed preaching or proclaiming or delivering this was a heavy message this was a burden uh, that he was uh that was against babylon now but here's the thing right We guys, as believers, here you are. You're a child of God. You love God. You want to be accurate in your reflection of God. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe you do, but uh, yeah, no. Come on, I trust that's true. Sorry, I keep reaching back here because my mic cord is is kind of drifting off to my shoulder, and it's driving me crazy. Um, But um, we have to be faithful to deliver the truth. Of God's word, right? Even those aspects that are heavy, that are weighty, that aren't necessarily pleasant to proclaim. But let me say this when we share the consequences of sin with people around us or in front of us or whatever the case may be it should as we see with isaiah here the burden it should come from a place of concern a place of compassion it should be a burden that is clear and evident to the one or the ones with whom we're sharing in other words not the you're going to get what you got coming kind of mentality but listen man I am concerned for you I I have a burden you know That that is kind of attached to you I mean I want to see you uh, uh, Do well you see what I'm saying I want to see you respond appropriately I don't I don't want to see this This kind of thing happen and it's There's still a chance you see as long as There's the breath of life you can repent And we can you know so I mean because that's The thing guys God's not willing So when we come to this whole ha That's not the heart of God What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish. It's God's desire that all should come to repentance. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their ways, trust in Jesus Christ, and be saved. But listen, His righteousness, His justice will be satisfied. It demands it. And it has been satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ. But if you're not in Christ, if you haven't given your heart or your life to Christ, well, then I mean, I'm just going to be you're on your own, you see. Uh, And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that's a couple of things. The third thing that we note here, and and I trust so I want you to underline the word burden because it should be. Anytime we're bringing a message that's heavy and weighty, it should be something that's resonating in us. We want to see repentance. We want to see a response, right? The third thing that we see is that it was against Babylon. Now guys, this is where it gets even more interesting because Babylon, as you Bible students know, you students of Scripture know, represents more than one thing in Scripture. Uh, Yes, it was a literal historical city, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, which is what? Modern-day Iraq, okay? This was the Babylonian Empire, the basic boundaries, but Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire uh, located there on the Euphrates River, okay? For those of you who are kind of geographically kind of acclimating to where and what was happening, it's also the place. Babylon was also the place where, after the flood, you remember Genesis eleven, the people began to accumulate. They began to amass, and they, their goal was to build a tower which uh, the, which reached the top, reached into the heavens. They were they were worshiping essentially the the uh, was astronomy, you know, the astrology and all, uh, worshiping the stars and in rebellion against and defiance of God. And so, scripturally. Babylon also symbolizes the world system that man has built in defiance of and rebellion against God. Okay? So you might say Babylon represents the godless city of man, right? Or the 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 way of man, the rebellious system of man. And and Jerusalem stands in biblically speaking, Jerusalem stands in contrast to Babylon. So Jerusalem is God's chosen city the chosen city of God Babylon is the wicked rebellious city of man are you with me Jerusalem the chosen city of God Babylon the wicked rebellious city of man in fact the city of Babylon is mentioned more than any other city in the entire Bible nearly 300 times with the exception of Jerusalem which is mentioned over 800 times okay The city of God will last forever. The rebellious city of man ultimately will be destroyed. Okay? We also see Babylon in Revelation chapter seventeen and verse five. It's used to, and it kind of falls into that under that same umbrella of the wicked, rebellious city of man, the ways, the system of man apart from God. But specifically, he also references it there. John references there to describe the false religions of the world. Okay, so when God speaks out against Babylon, and I know that's a whole lot, guys, that we're going through, but I trust you're with me. But when God speaks out against Babylon, guys, there are layers of meaning kind of embedded into it, okay? Uh, There's the near historical fulfillment, and then there is the far prophetic fulfillment as God destroys the rebellious world system of man. You're with me, yes? Okay. And it's all swimming around right here in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14, which God willing we'll get to next time we're together, okay? One of the things fascinating about this prophecy, guys, is that when Isaiah recorded it, and let let this kind of buzz around and blow your mind a little bit, but when Isaiah recorded this prophecy against Babylon, Babylon was not even a significant player on the world stage. It wasn't an empire, more of just kind of like a single city-state. Those of you that are in the Kings, you'll come across it uh, eventually, but you remember Hezekiah. Uh, He invited some ambassadors from the city of Babylon to come to his palace and see all his treasures and do all of that. And that's about as far as it went in Isaiah's day. In fact Babylon would not become a world conquering empire under Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you have heard the name Nebuchadnezzar, right? And you think of Nebuchadnezzar and you think this is ancient Israel, you know, Daniel. This was way, way, way back. Well I want you to understand something that Nebuchadnezzar was some Hundred years after Isaiah's prophetic career had come to a close. Okay? So here is Isaiah over a century before Babylon reaches this place of world power already prophesying of its fall. Okay? So imagine hearing a prophecy perhaps the fall of New Zealand. You know? I mean, it's not a good example, probably, but you kind of get the point. My point is, you know who they are. I mean, you've heard of New Zealand, right? But they're not really jockeying for a position on the world stage of superpowers by any stretch. They're just kind of out there doing their thing. And that's kind of what's happening here. But as we'll see, it's not only the literal city that God is pronouncing judgment upon. It's that rebellious world system of man as well. Babylon and all that it stands for will one day be destroyed in what the Bible refers to as the great tribulation. The great tribulation. Now, here's, the, here's another question, guys, and we'll be, we'll be moving on, all right? Why did God speak this word against Babylon in Judah? You ever stop thinking about it? In other words, as far as we know, what I mean by that, as far as we know, this prophecy was never published in the Babylonian post. You know what I'm saying? Like, hear ye, hear ye, the destruction of Babylon. You know, there was there was none of that. As far as we know, Babylon never even heard these words. Well, a couple reasons. Again, to assure God was assuring his people that his word is true, right? That he's in control. That he will judge the wicked nations around them. You remember right now Israel and Judah, they're kind of been taken to the woodshed. They're feeling, they may be feeling a little singled out here. It's like, wait, well, what? you know, God's saying, no, you're not being singled out. Every nation will be held to account before me. God would assure them of that fact, you see. But then secondly, he was assuring them that he would take vengeance on those nations that came against them. And we've talked about this before. God can use the ungodly that does not excuse their ungodly. Godly nest. Does that make sense? God can take what man means for evil and use it for for his good, but man is still held accountable for his evil. Okay, all right. So let's let's shift gears. We're ready to go. Right. Look at verse two. He says, "Lift up a banner." on the high mountain raise your voice to them wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles I have commanded my sanctified ones I have also called my mighty ones for my anger those who uh, rejoice in my exaltation verse 4 the noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle they come from a far country from the end of heaven the Lord and His weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. And they will be in pain as, when a, woman, uh, as a woman in childbirth. And they will be amazed at one another. And their faces will be like Flames. Guys. By the way, you should know that oftentimes these prophets, when they would write, the Bible says they really didn't even understand much of what they were writing. They desired to look into. They wanted to gain insight and understanding to all this. They're just talk about writing by faith. Isaiah, he sees this vision. He's writing this down. And he's like, I, what in the, you know, there's a, so many like layers and pieces of this puzzle that he's being faithful to the calling of God on his life. But it's not, I promise you, he's not tracking with everything that's going on here. Okay, so these guys you ever? I guess what I'm trying to say by that is, if you ever feel like the Lord's moving in your way and you don't completely understand everything that's going on, or the why twos or the how fours, you're in good company. Hey, God's ways are above our ways; they're beyond our finding out. And if God's ways are above our ways, higher than the heavens are from the earth, is His ways, then it would stand a reason that there's going to be some things that take place or transpire that we don't always get. Okay, that's just a bonus, but. Everything about this prophecy is really, guys, it's pretty mind-blowing and amazing. Uh, God begins to make known the destruction of Babylon before, okay, the superpower kind of rise of Babylon. And we looked at this principle in chapter 10. I just kind of made brief mention of it to you, so I'm not going to linger on it now. But God is saying here that He's going to raise up another group of people to punish, to destroy Babylon. He's like, look, I'm mustering my armies. And we talked about how God uses the wicked for righteous ends. Uh, You know, it doesn't justify the, the wickedness of the wicked or the ungodliness of the ungodly or any of that, but God can take and turn those things for the fulfilling of his plan his purpose. And that's what's in view when he says I've commanded my sanctified ones. He's got some folks that He's set apart to do his bidding to run his errands. And in verse 4 he says the Lord of hosts musters an army for battle. In other words they're his weapons of indignation they'll be used as instrument his instrument the instrument in his hand or his of his wrath, of his judgment. Now you remember uh, Assyria back in chapter Remember when, when God was, or Isaiah was saying, the Lord was saying through Isaiah, he was talking about Assyria and how he would be like, the, the king of Assyria would be like an instrument in his hand. He said, though he doesn't know it, he doesn't intend it. You know, in other words, the idea was uh, Assyria, I, I think I used the phrase, they thought they were out there to they thought they were out there to chew gum and destroy nations but gum hadn't been invented so they were just left to destroy nations you know and that's what they thought he, they were just taking names and destroying nations and all the things they weren't thinking about God or, or bringing glory to God or being used by God a matter of fact they even tried to make a mockery of God when they went up around the city of Jerusalem remember and Hezekiah went in and he spread out the words the threat before God he said God I don't know what's going on he laid his, his, his concerns before God and God said I'm going to take care of it they're not even going to Fire an arrow into the city, and that I remember that 185,000 of them, the angel of the Lord killed. Um, but my point is, is that God, up to that that particular point, was allowing their path to be successful because it would serve His ultimate purpose. Okay, but already we're beginning to see. Uh, nuances of that near far fulfillment, or at least a similar situation. He talks about mustering an army coming from a far country, from the ends of heaven, uh, and it's beginning to turn our thoughts toward, you know, Revelation 16. God will dry up the Euphrates River. Where is Babylon located? Oh, yeah, it's, it's there on the Euphrates River. God, and so that the, he, the the book of Revelation says for the way of the kings of the east. He will muster an army uh, and prepare them and draw them from the ends of the earth for that one last battle that he ushers prior to ushering in his millennial kingdom right before this whole this battle of what where's it at Armageddon right and notice in verse 6 it says whale and this is is an important phrase okay for the day of the Lord underlying that phrase is at hand if you have studied scripture for much time at all then you know this phrase, the day of the Lord, is significant. Okay? Now, what does the day of the Lord mean? Or Is this like some kind of like 24-hour cycle, the day that God's going to do something? No, not at all. The day of the Lord does not refer to a 24-hour period, okay? The day of the Lord refers to a season, you might say a time period, a period in time in which God will pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Right now, you might say that man is having his day, okay? This is man's day. But soon, God will have His day, Okay, And it will come, we read, as destruction from the Almighty. Fear and distress will be on every side. Uh, He says, every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Now, Jesus, in reference to the great tribulation, which is yet to come, said that amongst other things there would be notice men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth in other words man what's happening and what what's still going to have it's like oh my gosh what's next kind of a thing and and people's hearts will be giving out on them for fear okay? Pangs and sorrows, he says, will take hold of them. Pain as a woman in childbirth, no epidural. (laughs) Okay? Uh, And they will be amazed, faces like flames. In other words, overwhelmed, afraid. The term, right? Shock and awe will be raining down upon the earth. You might just write it down so you can research it and read it later. It's found in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, okay? If you want a glimpse into this future fulfillment. Now, as for the conquering of historical Babylon, if you want to read about that, you can write down and research Daniel chapter 5, okay? Believe me, there was shock and awe for them. Maybe some of you, maybe this will ring a bell. Others of you will be like, what is he talking about? I'm going to look that up later. And that's, by the way, when I say things like, guys, you, you remember, or you know, and then I say something and you're like, I don't know. I don't remember. Is he trying to make me feel dumb? No. I'm trying to say, if you don't remember or you don't know, Be inspired to go look into it, to learn of it, to find out what it's all about. Don't just go, well, I guess I'm just dumb then. That's not the take home. The take home is, man, I want to learn about that, okay? But you remember Daniel chapter 5. Some of you, it'll be like, oh yeah. Remember that little hand of a man that appeared out of nowhere. There was Belshazzar and they were actually having a party. They were so, and there was, um, there were the Medes outside around the camp and everything. And they were so confident in their walls, their gates and everything that he threw a party, went and got some of the treasures of the temple from Israel and they were drinking out of the goblets and they were all just kind of getting loose. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere this hand appears and they're all what is happening and you've heard the phrase the handwriting on the wall hey man the handwriting's on the wall that means this is coming down the pike and there ain't nothing you can do about it that's where that phrase comes from this hand begins to write on the wall many many m-e-n-e many many tekel you farsen. and and they're all like they've uh, like they've seen a ghost and no one knows what it means Is there anyone in the kingdom that knows what it means? And someone's like, well, there's this old man who served your father. His name's Daniel. He could interpret visions and things like that. Maybe he would know. Go get him. Go get him. What happened? Look it up. (laughs) But that whole handwriting on the wall event, they were, as it says here, amazed at one another. I mean, it's like knees knocking, right? Okay. Verse 9. I need to move on because I've, I digressed a little bit. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth and will move, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as the hunted gazelle And as a sheep that, ha- that no man takes up Every man will turn to his own people Everyone will flee to his own land Everyone who is found will be thrust through And everyone who is captured will fall by the sword And their children will also be dashed to pieces Before their eyes Their houses will be plundered Their wives will be ravished Now guys I am choosing uh, For the sake of our time to kind of focus on the yet-to-come aspects of this prophecy, okay, as opposed to the uh, historical fulfillment. But again, there are overtones of both in our present passage. Uh, We see this phrase again, the day of the Lord comes. Now, it would come for the Babylonian empire, and it's coming For the world system which has rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I would remind you guys that God's wrath is not predicated upon God's mood, okay? Uh, It's predicated, remember what we talked about? What is God's wrath predicated upon? It's predicated upon the principle of justice, uh, his righteousness, okay? By the way, this is another reason why I believe that we as the church, okay, will not be here when this ultimate undoing, this outpouring uh, of God's wrath takes place. We will have been, remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, you remember the phrase? We will have been caught up or raptured right that's the word in the greek harpazo caught up snatched away violently also raptured is where we get the word with those who have already gone to be with the lord uh, those who have died in christ to meet them in the air right isn't that what paul says and thus we shall always be with the lord praise god But the Bible is very clear that this time, guys, referred to some 26 times in your Bible as the day of the Lord is a time in which, as I mentioned a moment ago, and we see it here, God will pour out his wrath. Did you see it? The day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. But here's the thing for you, believer, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Somebody say amen to that. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. In other words, family, Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. You, therefore, in Christ have not been appointed to wrath, but to salvation, to life everlasting by grace through faith. It doesn't even follow, guys, simple logic for Jesus to bear the wrath of God on our behalf and then God to pour out his wrath on us. Okay? The wrath of God was satisfied at the cross. And so in Christ, We're not appointed to wrath. But God's wrath will, notice, lay the land desolate. Uh, He will destroy, notice, sinners from it. In other words, those who have rebelled, those who have rejected Christ. The day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, when God will settle accounts, okay? And every sin will be brought to account by the just outpouring of His wrath, now, as I said, God's justice, God's righteousness demands this, but God's heart isn't to destroy sinners, it's to save them, and that's why Jesus came. Remember, I alluded to it, I, I kind of semi-quoted it earlier, with these words, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn turn from your evil ways. This is God's plea to man. God gives mankind the opportunity to repent. But when they fill up what the Bible refers to as the measure of their sins, his wrath will be poured out. Now, if verse 10 sounded familiar, it's because Jesus referred to it. Regarding the great tribulation, you know, that final seven year period of time. You remember last week, if you were with us, we kind of drew attention to the 70th week of Daniel that is still. Uh, out there for the nation of Israel, uh, which is that time in which God is pouring out of his wrath the last uh, three and a half years in the form of uh, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. Again, that revelation six through 18 period of time. And Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And other words, this time will bring, bring, remember I said men's hearts failing them from fear of not only what is happening, but what might happen, the expectation of what is going to happen. Cataclysmic upheavals, cosmic disturbances will literally be rocking the world, Okay. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Now, when historical Babylon fell, I'm sure they felt like their world was coming apart. When the ultimate fulfillment of this takes place, just prior to the return of Jesus Christ, the world will literally be falling apart, becoming apart, be rocking and shaking and and being destroyed. He says, notice, I will punish. Did you see what he said here Uh, in uh, uh, verse uh, 11? I will punish the world for its evil. You see how this prophecy is spilling into more than the Babylonian Empire historically? He says, man, I will punish the world for its evil. God is speaking globally here. Ultimately, he says, I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. Think about that. When you read Revelation chapter 6, you find there people dying militarily, uh, you find them dying from general chaos and anarchy. Uh, and when the fourth seal is broken, some 25% of humanity is wiped out. Okay? Now this is after the rapture. And I don't know how many's going to go in the rapture. A couple billion maybe? it would be awesome. Maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. But 25% of humanity is destroyed in the fourth seal. And then later on in chapter 9, another third of humanity is killed. Uh, and so by the time from chapter 6 to chapter 9, and that's not even talking about the miscellaneous things of m- the people dying from drinking uh, water that's been uh, poisoned from these you asteroids and meteorites that are careening to the earth and polluting the water supply. It's not talking about the third of the ships of the sea that sink and uh, all these things. Uh, so already well over 50% of, the huma- of humanity upon the, on the earth you see by Revelation 9 is gone. It is completely destroyed and there are many, many more that will still follow beyond that. Basically what God is saying is that man will be like an endangered species in that day. You know, I mean, it, rare, they, they just few and far between when you consider the global space they're encompassing. You know, Jesus said, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. God will shake the heavens and the earth Now you can write down and read Haggai chapter uh, 2 and verse 6, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. They both echo this same thought. But God will remove everything that can be shaken so that only that which can't be shaken will remain. Quick question, where's your foundation? Think about how important that is. Best to be founded on the immovable, unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. uh, Because like a gazelle that's being hunted that's what we read isn't it like the gazelle that's being hunted God's judgment is relentless The un- there will be no escape from the unrelenting all-consuming judgment of God it's coming and again it's what Jesus endured for you and for me the all-consuming judgment of God I just pray that you love Jesus all the more but Psalm 137 if you want to read it later speaks of how the Babylonians and I'm moving on down now how they would uh, ravish their enemies uh, dash the children of those whom they conquered upon the rocks they were just a ruthless brutal and merciless kind of people and in verses 15 and 16 uh, what we're reading here is that as they have sown so they shall reap he says look the time's coming Your women are going to be raped. Your kids are going to be killed. Your infants are going to be dashed against a stone. It's, It's what's coming for you, okay? Now... In, in verse uh, 17 he says, Behold, I will stir up the meads against them who will not regard silver. He can't buy them off. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew and Gomorrah just complete Total annihilation. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch his tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls or ostriches. And go- there, some of the some of the imagery is even of the satyrs. Uh, how do you say s a t y r? Like demonic beings, and and you know, in other words, it'll be the the dwelling for demons. Demons and such, the hyenas with a howl uh, will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant place uh, palaces. And her time uh, is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. In other words, again, Babylon would be and will be laid to waste, not just historically, but ultimately, eternally. Now, real quick. Back in verse 17, he says, I will stir up the Medes. Remember the Medo-Persian Empire? Guys, this is another incredible detail. Uh, You know how I said that Babylon was over 100 years away from being a world-dominating empire? Really the first complete dominating empire that the the Bible would recognize. Remember in Daniel's vision, Nebuchadnezzar, they were the head of gold, right? But the Medes were well beyond that okay again horrible illustration I know you get the idea it'd be like God prophesying the fall of New Zealand by saying I will stir up the Danes you know like in other words telling people that Denmark will be New Zealand's undoing on the glo- you know, world stage of superpowers and you're thinking you got to be kidding me what do you mean superpower you know um by the way, I don't know who's uh, Karen, are you coming forward, Abby? Whoever. But this is what drives the skeptics of Scripture, you guys, and the liberal theologian. Th- th- this is what drives them crazy to see these kinds of like details uh, being brought to the forefront centuries or, or more in front of the fact. They say, no, nah, no, nah, listen, someone else you know, must have written these things after the facts and then maybe signed Isaiah's name to it or something, you know, because they just can't believe that God would know what's going to happen in advance. Question, how big is your God? Listen, if your God can't even tell you what's coming down the pike, maybe you're serving the wrong God, you know. Now, I want you to notice that this, this specific detail uh, that they will be as Sodom and Gomorrah, this complete annihilation, devastation, and destruction. That did not happen, okay, when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. Matter of fact, it, it was left standing. And now, historically, it did fall into ruin. But ultimately, we recognize that this is pointing to the final destruction of that world system in opposition to God, Remember the the, the layers that God is speaking into when he speaks to Babylon. What's the take home? I'll say it again. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Judgment is coming. God's righteousness demands satisfaction, justice. God's justice will be satisfied but the price has been paid at the cross. And so turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus. Live your life for Jesus that God might be glorified in your life. Turn from your wicked ways and live. Amen? All right, let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that your heart is to save us. God, we thank you for the richness and the clarity and the reliability of your word. Uh, Lord, that you speak into the details, historically, prophetically. you, You call the end from the beginning, God. The things that haven't happened as though they're past and done. And so I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately to your word, leading lives set apart to you, that you would teach us to walk in the spirit and not after the flesh for the glory of your name. And guys, we're preparing our hearts to partake of communion today, but while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, again, I just want to... Listen, judgment's coming. Make no mistake. But grace is available today. And so if you need to turn from your sin, maybe you've played the church game, <laughs> or maybe you've just come here the first time or a few times. I, I mean, I don't know. But if you've not turned from your sin, if your life doesn't belong to Jesus, if you're not living your life for Jesus, Jesus, Why not right here, right now, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Call upon the name of the Lord and leave here a new creation. For guys, it is written, right? The word of God that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.